0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. All right. So it is time for us to turn in our homework that I gave you guys last week. So um, if you just want to pass it into the center, that would be great. Everybody's kind of sitting there with this panic in their, their chest, like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what, what, what did I forget to do? It, maybe some of you had like a flashback back to high school or like college or something where that one time where you forgot. And so just to really, no, there's, there isn't actually a, a paper that you need to turn in. Um, you didn't have anything that, that you were supposed to turn in, but we did talk about something. We, we, last week we talked about committing to a prayer rhythm about making prayer part of uh, the, the daily routine of who we are. And, and it's something that we've been talking about uh, over the past few weeks. I think we're in part uh, eight of this series on, on prayer. And we, we've kind of talked about in the morning where when we wake up, we, we pray, pray through the, the structure of the Lord's Prayer. And again, that's not just reciting the Lord's Prayer, but it's, it's sitting down and using that as the model, as the, the instruction that, that Jesus gave. Then in the afternoon, we talked about praying for the lost, and then in the evening, we talked about praying gratitude. Say, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the, the blessings that you give. Thank you that that this uh, blessing took place in my day, and praying about those specific things. And now, for some of you, this may be the first time that you're hearing about this, <laughs> and or or maybe even better, this may be the first time that you're remembering that we talked about this since last Sunday. And if that's you, that's okay. <laughs> that, that's really just fine. There, there's nothing wrong with that. Come along with us as we continue in this going forward. But for those of you who participated in it this week, does anybody have anything that they'd like to share? Was there anything that, that you know, spoke to you? Was there anything that, that was difficult? Was there anything that, that you want to maybe bring to the group? Man, this is really scary. We don't we don't usually talk like on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Nothing? I have okay, is it about what we just talked? You weren't here last week, so that may- it's about what you just said about to a Okay. What and do you so got? Anyways, this guy's been trying to live with me and it's been very abusive and they've been trying to kick me out of the house during the day. Okay. Okay. So we can pray for that absolutely. So one of the, as far as the, one of the things that kind of came to, to mind for me as I was going through this process, and let me be clear, there were absolutely times throughout the week where, you know, I got to the evening time of the prayer, and I realized, oh yeah, I totally forgot the afternoon part of, of my prayer rhythm. And you know what I did? I just kept praying. <laughs> it, it wasn't one of those things where it's like, oh no, I missed lunch, so I just shouldn't eat anymore. Um, we we just pick it up, and we say okay. And you know what you can do if if that happens, is you can still pray for the lost in the evening. Like there, there's nothing that says oh oh no we we can't do that anymore. <laughs> no, it, it's okay. But one of the things that I started realizing as I was kind of praying through each of these three different you know prayer routines, is that there's a link that connects all three, and it's not just who I'm praying to, obviously that's a link, but there's, there's more to it that, that connects these three processes, and, and in the morning, I'm praying that God's kingdom would come on earth as it does in heaven, and do you know what part of that looks like? Part of God's kingdom coming and, and taking place on earth like it does in heaven is the lost being found. That, that's part of the, the kingdom coming, is the lost being found. And do you know what blessings that we get to pray for? Is we get to pray for how God's kingdom came throughout our day. That That's the ultimate blessing. That's where we look for that blessing. So when I look back at my day, maybe my day isn't filled with, you know, 10 people coming to Christ. I mean, that'd be amazing if that was my daily routine. But, spoiler, it's not. <laughs> that, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> and However, I can still look back at my day and through the Holy Spirit giving me insight, I can say this is how God's kingdom came in this particular area of my life today. And I can say thank you, Jesus, that, that your kingdom is coming in this particular way. And thank you for allowing me to partner with you in the midst of this and this, and this, and, and finding these different areas. That's, that's what's available to me. And so if we, we look at these three different rhythms that we're in being invited to participate in, we're, we're actually thanking God you know, in the same kind of sphere for all three. And so in the past weeks, we already went through and we, we participated in a study on the Lord's Prayer and, and learning that, that Jesus wasn't just directing his disciples to, to pray those exact words, but he was inviting them to, to follow his example. Just like he invited them to follow his example in all of these different areas uh, of living, right? I mean, they, they saw him and, and that was, they did life with him and in doing life with him, they, that's how the disciples became who they were after Jesus was no longer with them. And so the the Lord's prayer was was another example of this is how you pray in response to the question Jesus teaches us to pray. And so this morning, we're going to move on from the, the morning time prayer to we're gonna take a look and focus on the, the noonday rhythm of praying for the lost. Now, I am... Aware that it is out of style <laughs> to refer to someone as lost. That's that's just not the the politically correct thing to say. That's that's just not a, a very comfortable thing for for somebody to hear. Uh, you know, if you're you're praying with somebody, it, it maybe feels like there's superiority. Maybe. Maybe to others, it can indicate that we have a savior complex that, that we need to, to find that person that's lost. And I would say that if that's the problem, then it sounds like we have some language that needs to be redeemed. Because if Jesus is using the word lost, then, and I think that's what we're supposed to use. What is lost? Lost isn't a church word. We have a lot of church words. You know that? There, there's a lot of words that, that if you're sitting down talking to somebody who's just come to Jesus and, and you start using church words, all of a sudden they get this like blank look on their face and, and it's kind of discouraging to them because they're like, man, I have, like, I'm not even qualified to be in church. I don't think Jesus used a lot of church words because I don't think Jesus ever disqualified somebody from being in church. What I know is that lost isn't a church word, lost is a Jesus word. Lost is his preferred term to reference somebody outside of relationship with him. When I'm lost, I'm searching for safety, I'm searching for rest, I am am searching for a way back home. That's what lost means. Lost is that frantic feeling where you thought you knew where you were supposed to go. You thought you knew where you were going, but you didn't. And when you try to look behind you, you don't know how to get back to where you came from either. And in the midst of that, you cry out for help and you say, I'm lost. That's the loss that Jesus is referring to. And that's the loss that Jesus doesn't want anybody to be in. Lost is a term of love. The term lost doesn't convey fault. It doesn't doesn't blame the person who's lost. It's just someone trying to find their way back home, looking for a path that will get them there. And Jesus says, I'm it. This morning, we're gonna look at um, 1 Kings chapter 18. We haven't really done a whole lot in our our study on the the book of prayer of of coming to the Old Testament, but there's a, a specific example when it comes to praying for the lost that is important for us to look at today, and I need to set the stage. Israel has forgotten God. If we look at the Old Testament, we have this, this peak and valley that that comes in time after time after time after time, where where Israel forgets God, and, and God sends a prophet, and that prophet, you know, brings the people of Israel back. Sometimes it's like, get on my shoulders, we're going, and he brings them back to the, the presence of God, and back into relationship with God, and, and things are good for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, the people of Israel forget God, and, and it, we come back into this valley, and then another prophet shows up, and, and he said, okay, here we go, <laughs> and it, it just goes and goes and goes. And so where we're at right now is we're in this valley where the people of Israel have forgotten God and trust has been placed instead of in God, it has been placed in uh, King Ahab, the king of Israel, his wife, the queen Jezebel, and their false god Baal. And Elijah says, not on my watch. And so he, he shows up and he says, there will not be any rain until God says so. And so here we are, a thousand days into no rain happening in the Middle East. No rain in Israel is kind of like, it, it's not like if we had a thousand days with no rain here. I mean, that'd be a bummer if we had that here, but it wouldn't be as bad as it was in Israel. That's what I know. <laughs> so a thousand days with no rain. And so Elijah shows up and after three years, basically, he shows up to King Ahab. He says, I have a challenge for you. I have a challenge for you. I have a challenge for 450 of the priests of Baal. I have a challenge for Baal himself. He says, what if We go up to the top of Mount Carmel. We build two altars. We put two sacrifices on those altars. You pray to your God and I pray to mine and whoever sets fire to the sacrifice wins. Whoever sets fire to the sacrifice will prove that they are the God of these people. Baal, uh, if you look back at like the um ancient carvings, if you look at at the the carvings on walls and things like that, he is pictured as as holding a lightning bolt. He's the god of the sky. And so he would naturally be able to send that lightning bolt and, and burn up a sacrifice. That shouldn't be a challenge for him. He he can do that. And and he's also pictured sometimes as having the head of a bull. And so I mean, he, he's got both halves of the equation here. He, he is the head of the bull that is being sacrificed. He is able to throw lightning bolts. So, I mean, really, this shouldn't be difficult for him. He can, he can pull this off. And so he's being challenged to defend his reputation, right? The, the God Baal is being challenged to defend this reputation. Ahab and the priests are being challenged to defend their God's reputation, and if i may have you kind of start thinking well this is this is intriguing you know he's not going to lose anything and why not let's well, let's prove who can do this and you know if fire does actually show up you know that's probably something i'd like to see i mean everybody here is like i'd pay money to go right i <laughs> i'd buy a ticket to get on on that it's not every day that you get a a binary challenge of either yes this is the God of the universe, or no, he's not. And so Ahab agrees. And I, I was kind of thinking about like the night before this sacrifice takes place, the night before everybody kind of treks up to this mountain, because I mean, it must have been a hike, because they had to go all the way up to this mountain, and You just kind of think about, like, what was Elijah thinking about? Like, I bet you he was praying. I bet you there was some conversation that was happening, like, God, I know you told me to do this, but I just really need you to show up here, like, just in case you forgot. Like, this is really, really important that you do this, otherwise I'm going to look really silly. Because I probably would pray like that. There's probably some time where, where God has told us, has directed us to do something, and we, we step out in that. But as we're stepping, I say, like, God, please make sure you got this. And so the time comes. Elijah goes up, and, and the, the prophets go up, and, and we know that there's a bunch of people that followed him. And it starts out with the 450 priests of Baal. They put their, their altar together. So they, they have stones, they've got wood, they've got the, the meat that's kind of cut up into pieces. And, and they, they start praying for, for Baal to answer. And he doesn't answer. And they start shouting and they start kind of working themselves up in a frenzy to try and convince their God to, to answer. And he doesn't answer. They start cutting themselves and mutilating themselves to try and convince their God to answer and he doesn't answer. And finally, they're just exhausted. They're, they're a mess. They, they, they're all just hopelessly looking at this pile of rocks and, and wood and meat and nothing has happened. So they say, well, he's probably not gonna do any better, right? So let's just, let's give it to him. And so Elijah comes up. The first step that Elijah takes, if we read in in 1 Kings 18, is that he rebuilds an altar. Now, it doesn't tell us a whole lot, but it tells us that there must have been an altar there before. There was an altar that was there before that got taken down that was used to worship God. Because what we do know is that Elijah would never have sacrificed something that was used to to worship an idol. You know, that that isn't something that was done at that time. And so we, we have this altar that has been torn down that used to be used to worship God. And the first thing that Elijah does is he shows up and he restores that altar. That's significant. We're gonna come back to that in just a second. Next, he, he prepares the sacrifice. And so he's, he's built this altar with, with stones the way it's supposed to be built. He's arranged the wood. And in verse 33, it says, he arranged the wood, he cut the bowl into pieces and he laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I have read this story a lot of times just throughout the course of my life. This is, this is one of those common stories that you hear in Sunday school. This is, this is one of those key points. And I have always approached this portion of Scripture from the standpoint of Elijah adding water because it was gonna make it harder. When, when you add water to something, when you completely soak something, it makes it so it's harder to catch fire, right? Like That's kind of like fire starting 101, is you start with dry stuff. And that process kind of feels a little bit like a magician setting up a trick. It kind of feels like Elijah would be, you know, Kind of getting everything ready to saw the lady in half, and he says, "Oh, but wait!" And he puts on the blindfold, right? And now he's gonna do it blindfolded. But Elijah wasn't a magician getting ready for a trick; he was a prophet who was getting ready to pray to God. Now, what did we just talk about? We said that it hadn't rained in Israel for how many days? A thousand days. When it doesn't rain for a thousand days, what becomes a pretty important resource? That becomes like almost the most important resource. And if we think about the jars that they fill, those four jars, and I don't think this was like little mason jars. I'm pretty sure these were like big kid jars, like jars that would completely soak an entire stone altar and the, the meat that was on it. And it was enough to overflow a trench that was dug around the altar. And this is, this is just Matt talking. This isn't necessarily, you know, I don't have Bible verses to back this up, but what if Elijah wasn't necessarily saying, hey, look at, look at what we're gonna do. What if this was purely a sacrifice? This was a, a giving of what was at that time the most important resource that he had saying that, God, I know you're the God of this people. I know that you are the God of this nation. And I know that you are worthy of all of the praise that that I'm going to bring you this morning that these people are going to eventually bring to you. And because of that, I'm going to give you everything. Not just the meat, not just this altar that I have rebuilt, but I'm going to sacrifice the most important resource that I have to you. This country is starving to death. No political party can change that. No king can change that or do anything about it. The most prized possession in a long-term drought is water. and he's not just placing his reputation on the line but he is placing his earthly comfort he's placing his security everything that he has the most profound act of worship that he can bring is giving everything what is david say in 2 Samuel 24, uh, 2 Samuel 24, 24, it says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so Elijah prays. says, answer me. Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell, and it burned up the sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the soil, and, and also licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So let's recap. Let's look at what happened here. So Elijah repaired the altar. He restored worship in that place. People were worshiping all sorts of other gods, but he restored worship to the God in that place. And then he pours out water. Water wasn't just costly to him. It was costly to everybody that was watching. And Elijah didn't actually even pour it out himself. He brought people from the crowd to pour it out. He involved other people in his worship. And next, God's presence becomes obvious. Fire comes down from heaven, where moments ago there was only wet wood and wet meat. And now the people are face down worshiping God. Imagine those are the people that you have been praying for this week. Imagine those are the lost that we have been praying for for however long you have been praying for them. Those are the people that that are maybe sitting next to you on a Sunday morning in that comfortable chair. I mean, people that we would maybe consider the farthest away from God. Those are the lost. The people who on Saturday are tearing down the altar of the Lord are now prostrate on the ground shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God on Sunday. That's what what we see happening here. That's what that's what I want to see happen on a Sunday morning. Right? I mean if that was the result here on a Sunday morning, I would probably count that as a pretty successful Sunday service. We're gonna skip ahead for just a second. But there's an important point for us to, to consider as we, we come to this next section. It is easy for us to look at what just happened, this event that just took place, and say that the fire coming down from heaven is the climax of everything that, that we know about in this particular event. But it's not. Starting in verse 41, it says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of... Of a heavy rain. This is a prophet speaking to a a high political figure, to a king who has been going through a severe national disaster for a thousand days. And you can bet, just like at our nation, when things aren't going well in the country, the people in charge start getting some blame. Right? And you can bet a good amount of blame came towards Ahab during this time. And all the same, we have Elijah coming to Ahab saying, Go kill the fatted calf, uncork the best wine, and fire up the grill because rain is coming. The same God who just appeared in fire just now is going to send forth his rain onto this city. And so 1 Kings 18, 42 through 45, it says, So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. He bent down to the ground and he put his face between his knees. He said, Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. He went up and he looked. He said, There's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. And the seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose and a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Three years into a massive drought, there is a massive downpour on the city. There is celebration in the streets. There is new life in a depressed place. That's the climax. God is not after the church on fire. God is after the rebirth of a city. The dream isn't that Wood Street Chapel would become this, this really awesome church with, with like okay preaching and a huge worship team and a whole bunch of events that happen throughout the week. I mean, that's great. That, that's a really nice thing. But what God wants to see is the rebirth of a city. God's dream is of a city reborn. The dream starts with the church on fire, the dream starts with the fire of God coming in and returning the hearts of the people to God. But that's not the destination. And so often we get stuck in this place of thinking that that is the destination. That's the thing that we need to see happen. We need to see the church on fire. Yes, we do, but that's not the place where we stop. And it would be tempting to think that the church on on fire seamlessly leads to the rebirth of a city. It would be tempting to think that, yeah, okay, it's a progression, and we just, okay, we have this happen, and on we go. But that's not the way it works. The section that we just skipped, we're going to come back to now. And so Elijah sends the king to go prepare for rain. But what does he do? He prays. Elijah sends the king to, to go eat and drink and to celebrate what's taking place but, and to get ready, but Elijah prays. He climbs to the top of the mountain and he gets on the ground and he puts his head between his knees and he prays. Now that's a pretty specific description. I mean, we just got done talking about fire coming down from heaven and it just said fire came down from heaven. Like if it was me, I would like a little bit more detail in that specific point, right? Like what did that look like? I mean, if you think, like, what would Hemingway say if he was talking about fire coming down from heaven? Like, and the, the flames licked up the, the, you know, twigs and burnt these different colors and blah, blah, blah. Fire came down from heaven. That's all I need to know, apparently. And so when the Bible is this specific about something like this, maybe we need to pay attention. This specific about the posture that Elijah takes when he comes to pray. Scholars indicate that the posture that Elijah has taken here is the same posture that a pregnant woman takes when it's time to push. That's how Elijah is praying. If we look at the Gospel of John, he references specifically this type of prayer as fervent prayer. He, it can be referenced as contending prayer where we were there praying for the city. God answers prayers that bring new life. God loves to answer prayer that brings the lost home. I'm gonna, I can talk to you afterwards, okay? Um, God loves to answer prayers that bring the lost home. One thing that we know is that prayer for the lost takes time. Prayer for the lost can be slow. and we, I mean, we see it even in this, right? Seven times Elijah prays. Seven times Elijah prays that the, the rain that has been stopped, the, the heavens would be open and the rain would come to this city. And it takes seven times to pray that that cloud would, be, would show. Prayer for new life requires labor, it requires persistence. One thing that we know is that it is not enough just to want the legacy of, of the church fathers who, who had amazing things happen out of their church ministry. It's not enough just to want that legacy. We have to commit to the the prayer that was involved in that. There's a a pretty well-known story of uh, Moody, who's a a well-known 19th century evangelist uh, church uh, father who had a list of 100 people that he carried with him regularly, that he prayed for regularly, that uh, he, he was contending for, that he wanted to see come to Jesus. Of those 100 people, by the time he died, 96 of them had had come to Jesus. And the four people that hadn't come to Jesus were at his memorial service. And they came to Jesus at that service. 100 people. And, you know, it'd be tempting to say, well, why don't we just make one of those lists and stick those in our pockets? And you can, Making the list doesn't matter. Making the list doesn't get the job done. Praying for the lost is the requirement. And not just staying faithful for a couple of weeks. That has to become a part of who we are, a part of what we do. God moves in response to prayer. And if you want that type of legacy, then we have to pray in order to, to receive that type of labor, legacy, we have to labor for it long and unglamorously. It's not glamorous to be at the top of the mountain with your head between your knees praying for rain. Calling down fire from heaven was pretty cool. Cool. Elijah probably felt pretty good. (laughs) But the secret of labor is what we're called to do in in those intimate times, in those times where nobody else sees. In in Luke 9, verse 54, it says, when the disciples, James and John, saw this particular uh, event that was taking place, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these people that are doing things? in a way that was, was counter to, to what they thought was supposed to happen. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, no, that, that wasn't the point. That was never the point. And it says, then he and his disciples went to another village. He said, come on, we, there, there's more for us to do here. <laughs> and so the disciples, were, they were looking for the spectacle, but Jesus is looking for prayer. And as a church, we look for the spectacle a lot. When we look at, at the word of God and we look at, at the, the, the areas of God's word that, that stick out to us, they're the spectacle in a lot of cases. And that's okay. It's okay for those things to stick out. But it's also critical to remember that there's prayer that's associated with that. There, there's oftentimes prayer that, that happened before that had that not been there, would have never. the spectacle would never have been seen. In James 5, 15 through 18, it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, and even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. It is easy for us to find ourselves hungering for the signs and wonders, for revival, for fire to fall, but I would say that far fewer of us find ourselves in that secret place crying out again and again and again and again and again and again and again that God would send his reign. I absolutely 100% believe that we are seeing God's revival happened here in this place at Wood Street Chapel. I, I know it. God's people are coming to worship. We're, we're seeing God move in mighty ways. The, the fire of his spirit is moving amongst his people. And I'm gonna say something, and I, I am saying this with all possible respect to those that have come before me. There have been too many times in our history as this church and as a church at large where that's where it stopped. It stopped where it has stopped here in this place. But this morning as we have this conversation about what does it mean to really pray for the lost, it, it means that we stop at, at just praying for, for the fire to fall and instead we, we go beyond that, we look beyond that, we expect beyond that for God to send his reign, not just here in this place, but God would, would become the savior of the city. that the city would be reborn. Yes, God, send your fire in this place, but let us go forth from here to the nations. God wants the church on fire because he wants a city reborn. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you are doing in this place. And God, our prayer this morning Our prayer as we go through this, implementing this rhythm of prayer in our life, our prayer every noon hour is that we would come, God, and that we would take that fire that has come and that we would come and pray for the lost. God, that you would would save the lost, that you would send your rain on a city that needs it, God. That you would show yourself the savior of these people and that they would see that there is no one like you. God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we we thank you that you are moving amongst your people. We make ourselves available to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, would make yourself known in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today.